So, what is your price? What is your price? One of my good friends and mentors, Dr. Bill Wood, used to like telling me about a time when, uh, when he was actually, he was, he was the pastor of a church in Kingsport, Tennessee, and he was, for those who don't remember Bill, Bill was actually the associate pastor at this church many years ago. He was Louis Abendon's first associate pastor, was my mentor and friend, the pastor who ordained me in Charlotte, North Carolina. But when he was in Kingsport, Tennessee, um, he, was, he was pretty well connected in the Presbyterian Church. He was starting to be fairly well known. And at some, at, you know, there were several occasions when different pastor nominating committees, different pulpit committees would come and they would come and offer him opportunities to move to other churches. And, and there was one time when he was, uh, when he was being courted by a church that, um, that was very attractive in a lot of different ways, down, a church down in Atlanta. And, and they just kept coming and, and they kept coming and, and he just, just kind of prayed about it and prayed about it and he felt convicted that he was not supposed to leave Kingsport. He just did not feel that this was, this was the time, that this was the season and that, or that this was the church. And they kept coming to him, and I mean, they, I mean, so much. So, I mean, they did not. I mean, he he politely turned them away, and then he more sternly turned them away, and then he finally just begged them to leave him alone. <laughs> and he and and they said, well, Doctor Wood, what is you know what is the problem? Are we just not you know? I mean, because they kept raising the they kept raising the offer, raising the offer. So he said, what is the problem? Are we you know are we just not in the ballpark? He says he says no. The problem is you're in the ballpark. And you're getting closer and closer. And if you keep coming, I'm, I'm scared that you're going to find out what my price is. And I don't want to be in that position. He said, I don't want this, like you said, sort of get thee behind me, Satan. I don't want to know what my price is. Because you just keep coming and you keep raising this offer. And, and I feel like God's telling me to stay and I don't want to be disobedient. Well, you know, that's, you know, that's a challenge all of us face, whether it's, a, whether it's a temptation or a threat, we are all challenged to find at some point and face in the mirror at some point in our lives what my price is. What is, you know, what is that threshold where the temptation becomes too great or the threat becomes too great to push me into disobeying God or turning against my conscience or, or betraying a friend or whatever the, the situation is, whatever that that sin is that that we that, that line is that we don't want to cross, you know we will be pushed and tempted. I mean that's what we see. You know that's why that's why Satan, you know that's why Satan tempted Jesus three different times in three different ways. He was trying to say, you know, all right, does the Son of God have a price? Does God Himself have a price? You know that 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 He will, you know, which is ridiculous with God because He already owns everything. There's nothing that He that He doesn't have. That I mean, well, there's nothing He doesn't have. And so there is no price, but you know, for us, well, we're not quite in that situation. Well, today we're going to be talking about a man named Balaam who found or whose price was, in a sense, discovered. And so we're going to, we're going to talk about that. You know, this is, again, one of those fascinating stories in the book of Numbers that, that, unfortunately, when people blow over numbers, they just miss. And yet, the story of Balaam and the figure of Balaam is one whose reach goes way beyond the book of Numbers. Again, this, you know, when you, if you read Numbers in isolation, 
you think, oh wow, this is you know this story of Balaam. Well, you know, it's an interesting little story, maybe even a kid's Sunday school story, until you realize the fallout from the events covered in the story, and you realize just how far-reaching those were. Um, I believe at the top of your outline today, I included a passage from Micah, chapter six. Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised? And what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him? And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? That you, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Here's God in the book of Micah, centuries later using as a reference the story of Balaam to make a point to the people. He shows up in the Old Testament. He shows up in the New Testament. He shows up in the book of Revelation. I mean, all these places. This is one of those figures that you need to know. You need to know his story so that you can understand more deeply the places where he is referenced. It's kind of like last week when we were talking about John 3.16. You know, how much more, do you feel like you have a better understanding of John 3.16 now that you know the story of, the, of, of Moses and the steak? Uh, steak. Moses and the snake. I'm sorry, I'm hungry. Uh, <laughs> Moses and the snake. Yeah. I mean, and I think that you really don't understand John 3.16 properly until we understand that context. Same thing with Balaam. Another one of those, those flyover stories that, we, that if we don't understand it, we're going to miss a lot of the richness, not only of the Old Testament, but of the New Testament. So let's consider what was going on. Of course, they were in the wilderness, but as they were in the wilderness, uh-oh, excuse me, let me hook up my, uh, got all my technology, I don't have all my technology together. Here we go, let's see. There we go. So they're in the wilderness again. They have been in the wilderness now for decades, and they're getting ready to, to make that move into the promised land. And what we read uh, at the beginning of this uh, at the beginning of this story, and as we've concluded the last story, we, we see that, that Israel, thanks to the Lord, thanks to His, his guidance, His power, His provision, it is, uh, Israel is beginning to have just a series of military successes. I mean, we first see that they defeat the Canaanite king, Arad. He attacks Israel, and Israel wins decisively. And, this, and it's after that victory then that we have the fiery serpent ordeal. It was when after the, after the defeat of the Canaanites of Arad that, that the Israelites doubt again. They start complaining again. And that's when the whole fiery serpent episode takes place. But then they get back on track and they have the war with, uh, with the Amorites. King Sihon will not let Israel pass through his land. He doesn't give them uh, airspace rights to, to conduct operations. He won't let them pass through. They said, we, we won't bother you. This is not the land we've come to conquer. We, you know, we just want to pass through. And, and, and King, uh, King uh, Sihon says, no, no, no. I'm not going to have that. You're not walking through my land. I know what's going to really happen. You're going to come in. I'm going to let you in. And you're just going to just ransack the place. So he wouldn't let them pass through. And so... Israel is not going to be deterred, and they do exactly what, uh, what Sihon feared they would do. They attack, and they take over. And then you have Bashan, King Og. He, in a sort of preventative retaliatory uh, idea, decides to attack Israel, and Israel destroys King Og and uh, the people of Bashan completely. No survivors, 
and he takes and they take possession of the land. And so you have these you have these you know these three huge military victories. A couple of them defensive, a couple of them uh, a couple of them offensive. But but again, God is showing that he is going to he is going to not only protect Israel, but he is going to make Israel victorious. Later uh, in the chapter we read today, we see that he is called the horns of the bull of Israel. You know, he, you know that's you know y'all know the old expression. You know, if you mess with the bull, you're going to get the horns. Well, you mess with Israel, you're going to get the horns of Israel, which is God. And he says, and so he is now cementing the fact that you know what he started in Egypt, he is going to continue into Canaan. And so we have this, you know, this series of victories. Now, this is making every other political entity in the region nervous. Matter of fact, terrified, fearful. They are on the move. The Israelites are on the move. And Israel arrives at the plains of Moab, where they decide to make camp. Now, here's what happens. Balak is the king of Moab. And Balak is terrified of Israel. And listen to what it says in chapter 22, beginning verse 2. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So again, he's, he's gotten word. His scouts have reported. And the, news, the news is in. You know, CNN's running this 24-7 about what the Israelites have done uh, in, in these previous cont- contests. And Moab was in great dread of the people because there were many. And Moab, when it says when he was in great dread of the people, he's talking about the Israelites here. You know, there are two words to describe all humanity. The La'am, which is the people, and the Goyim, which is the outside, or the Gentiles. And so when they say the people, they're talking specifically about the people of Israel. And so Moab was overcome by, with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. I mean, I, I find it fascinating that he refers to them as the horde. I mean, who do we refer to historically as like the horde? Like the, the Huns, the, the Mongols. I mean, nobody beats a horde. I mean, zombie literature and, and, and movies and, you know, kind of all that dystopian sort of sci-fi stuff. It is all about the idea of being overrun by a horde. I mean, this was the great fear of Rome. The great fear of Rome was that one day they would be overrun by barbarian hordes. And that's why, you know, that, that was the context of St. Augustine's great work, The City of God. Uh, I can't remember which, which set of barbarians it was. I think it was the Visigoths were were, you know, had just ransacked Rome, and it was just the calamity of calamities, and it was. I mean, they didn't come in happy. They were, they'd been oppressed for many years, and they were, they were there for some comeuppance. But the whole idea that you would have this horde of people, this, this swarm of locusts, this, this, just this mass of enemies coming that was just overwhelming like the tide. I mean, think of it, if you've been to the beach and, and you've built a sandcastle, you know that that's not going to last. Why? Because eventually the tide is going to just wipe it out and erase all memory of it. Well, this is what, what, uh, what Balak feared, is that you have this huge number of people, this, this, this mighty tribe that appears to be backed by the power of God. 
or, or the power of some god. We don't know who it is, but apparently this, this god is here to, to do business. And so he's, you know, he, and so he is terrified. He says that this people, this horde, will now lick up all that is around us as an ox licks up now the grass of the field. So Balak did what any leader would do. He tried to figure out a way to defend his people. And he realized that this was not conventional warfare. The Israelites had some kind of secret weapon. And, you know, we would, we would look at it these days that, you know, they had a nuclear capability. And we just have conventional warfare. Well, we have to remember, in those days, when the supernatural was much more palpable, Balak saw that they had a supernatural secret weapon in the power of God that his armies and no other army could stand against. And so, so Balak says, I, I don't know what to do. I, my armies, as skilled, as dedicated, as loyal, as numerous as they are, they can't be this because we're fighting a conventional war against a nuclear power. We're going to have to go nuclear. We're going to have to go supernatural. And so what did he do? Balak decided that he would get himself a nuclear weapon. And that nuclear weapon's name was Balaam. He decided to go supernatural, and Balak decided to hire a, wiz a wizard, you know, called various other places a prophet, a wizard named Balaam. Now, Balaam was a man, at this point, already of international renown and reputation. He had a reputation as a diviner, that is kind of a you know, fortune teller, prop, you know, somebody who re literally read the tea leaves and kind of saw, saw things people didn't see, as a prophet, someone who, who spoke to God, or at least the gods, as a holy man, and as a sorcerer, you know, someone who could command supernatural powers. He lived in Pethor, in, which is in northern Syria, near the river Euphra Euphrates. So he had sort of this ancient connection, ancient lineage to these ancient superpowers like Babylon and Assyria and, and uh, Ur and, and uh, the Sumerians and all those. Um, and, uh, and Balaam was, um, you know, he was just one of these people who had that, that reputation as a, as a person who had a power to get things done. And it's interesting that Balaam was a historical figure. A figure, He's not just mentioned in the Bible. He's also mentioned prominently in an 8th century B.C. inscription found at the site, at a site called Deir Allah in Jordan. The Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary says that in the middle of the destruction debris of this, of this tell, Deir Allah, large and small fragments of a fallen wall, plaster, plaster, plaster from that wall, were found containing a beautifully written Aramaic text relating the seer Balaam of Peor, of Beor, who witnessed a meeting of gods trying to prevent a goddess from punishing the human race by destruction. In the first millennium BC, he was apparently remembered as a great religious authority in the Jordan area. So there is extra canonical, extra biblical archaeological evidence that refers to Balaam. Whenever you hear, just sideline, whenever you watch the Discovery Channel, or the non-science channel, or the non-history channel, or any of those things, and they start talking about how archaeology has disproven so much of the Bible that there's no archaeological evidence. What they're doing is they are using archaeological evidence and, and the state of archaeology from about 150 to 200 years ago. 
What happens when, in archaeology when you keep digging? You start finding new stuff, right? Well, guess what? They've kept digging. And a lot, of that, a lot of that archaeological evidence that the skeptics of the German schools and the, you know, the European liberal schools base their evidence on has now been disproven because they did what archaeologists do. They, they kept digging. And so, so now you have, uh, you, not just in this case, but you have, you have lots of other you know, bits of evidence that are now coming, uh, coming to light showing, oh, well, these kings like David did exist. These kings like, or these prophets like, like Balaam were known. You had all these, you know, you have all these things that keep coming up. And so, so that's, you know, so, so this, you know, he was a historical figure, um, you know, and, but from conventional warfare to spiritual warfare, Balak, Balak wanted to hire Balaam essentially as a spiritual mercenary to curse Israel. In other words, I don't have any nukes. He's got a nuke. I'm going to go get him. He thought he could bring some parity to, to this conflict. So Balak sent men to negotiate with Balaam. Now Balaam received these emissaries, but he wouldn't give them an answer to their questions until he had spoken to the Lord. Basically, Balak sent, uh, he sent what are called the, the, princes of, uh, uh, the princes of Moab to him. He sent these noblemen with tons and tons of cash said we will not only give you money we will give you titles we'll give you hereditary title in the kingdom of moab if you will come and curse israel i mean this is not just if you'll come and tell us how to lay out our battle plan. They, they we want you to actually launch a spiritual supernatural attack calling on all of your demon, angel, godlike, demigod friends to come and attack Israel. This is what they wanted from him. But Balaam says, no, 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 wait a minute. You don't understand. That's not how it works. I'm, I'm not just a, I'm not just a you know, wizard for hire. I need to check with my allies. I want to see if they're into this. I want to see if they, you know, if I'm going to call on these heavenly powers to, you know, to, to nuke Israel, then I want to make sure that they're behind this too. And why would he do that? I mean, again, he, he really believed this stuff. I don't think he was necessarily a charlatan. He believed that, you know, if I, if I go out there and I curse Israel and nothing happens, well, all of a sudden his reputation shot. So he's got to, he's got to check. He's got to check. You know, he's got to read his tea leaves. He's got to check his crystal ball. He's got to, you know, pull out his Ouija board. He's got to, he might even pray. He might make a sacrifice or two, but he's going to consult these gods. And he says, you know, in particular, you know, this God that calls himself Yahweh, this God of the Israelites, I better check with him. I'll see what, see what happens here with him. And here's the amazing thing. He says, I'm not going to answer until I've spoken to the Lord. You look in the, if you look in your Bible, it's, it's, it's translated or it's, it's rendered as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the signal in English Bibles that, we are, that what is translated here is the proper name of God, I am, or Yahweh, Jehovah. So what's fascinating is that Balak, I mean, the Balaam knows the name of the Hebrew God, he knows his reputation, 
and apparently has some kind of relationship with him. Check this out, because it says, you know, is it legitimate to call Balaam a prophet? Yes. He's not a good prophet, as we're going to see, but he is a prophet. And how do we know that? Because God spoke to him. God spoke to him. Balaam is a legitimate prophet in the sense that God spoke directly to them. Apparently, his reputation was not without some merit. So look at verse 10. And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. And then God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. For they are blessed. So Balaam's thinking, that was a close one. <laughs> you know, I'm, you know this, is, this is a God who has leveled the most powerful empire on earth, and if I had taken this contract, I'd be in serious trouble. So Balaam obeys God and refuses to go and curse Israel. He says, thank you, but no thank you. I, your money, your titles, that's just not enough for me. Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Now here's the problem with kings. Kings are not used to hearing the word no. Powerful, arrogant people don't like to be told no. Powerful, arrogant people don't like to, be, don't like to have their ideas challenged. And so he says, okay, and I can just imagine he's stewing over it. He's probably thinking, do I arrest him and kill him or do I try another, do I raise my price? You know, because if I kill him, then I definitely don't have him in my service, but now I'm kind of angry. So Balak decides to raise the offer. And, Balak, and, and he goes, he sends his men back to Balaam with even more money. Now here's where the story becomes uh, becomes really sort of not just a morality tale but a warning for the future. We see that in spite of God's direct command that Balaam's not righteous. And how do we know that? Because he lets them come back. He haggles with them. You know, indicating that his his first his first refusal had more to do with his reputation and his price than it had to do with righteousness of God. I mean, again, Balaam thinks of himself not necessarily as a prophet, although he was one. He thinks of himself as a sorcerer, as a wizard. What is a sorcerer or a wizard? It's somebody who believes that they can actually control supernatural powers. So he, doesn't re so he thinks he can control the ocean. He's like the captain who says, the winds do what I want. I don't do what the winds want. And he has totally gotten it backwards. And so he's not righteous. And the view of the overall portrait of Balaam, this apparent submission, is probably to be taken as insincere. In other words, he, he, did not, he was not righteous. That's not why he refused God. It's like he wanted to see what else they had. Despite the clear statement, both God, uh, excuse me, despite the clear statement of both God and of the angel of the Lord, which will come later, Balaam continues to seek a way to get money and honor. 
He's still trying, you know, he, he's, he's starting to play the game now. He's to, I mean, even later, when, when we have a, when we see kind of the, the climax of the story, we see that he's always kind of looking for how he can get a payday out of this, and which is, which is again, fascinating. You know, it's, it's hard to think that there was some part of verse 12 that Balaam didn't understand. The, thou shalt not go and curse my people because I have blessed them. You're not going to do this. Which is fascinating because it's not that God is protecting his people from Balaam. Who is God protecting in that statement? Balaam. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... It's like, do not jump into this volcano, you will not win. But, he's tell, but Balaam still wants to go. Greed got the best of him. God's already spoken, but it's hard to turn that down, that much money. And it's likely that he wanted the money and, and the honor that Balak offered. And he was getting close to that price. As a matter of fact, he discovered it. The New Testament regards Balaam as one who loved gain... From, long do, from wrongdoing, 2 Peter 2, 15. Balaam is, compare, is described as one who loved gain from wrongdoing. And what Peter's doing is he's making a connection between Balaam and Judas. You know, that, that Judas was a loyal disciple until, you know, until he thought there was something to be gained from it. I mean, and that, you know, now, you know, I think other theologians have been more charitable to, P, to Judas over the years, but, but clearly from 1 Peter, P, Peter's willing to say, no, this was because of money. And, you know, Peter knew him as well as anybody. So, so, ba so again, um, so Balaam obeys God. Oh, excuse me. Um, uh, excuse me. So Balaam this time decides, well, I'll go take a look. I'll go take a look. You know, they, they've, 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 they have somehow found his price. And then we get to one of the best Sunday school felt board, veggie tales type stories we've ever get to in the Bible. Chapter 22, verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because Balaam went. He set out, Balaam set out to go curse the people of Israel. And the angel of the Lord took his way in the stand, uh, took his stand in the way of his adversary. Now I love that. Don't you? God, the angel of the Lord has declared Balaam his adversary. My whole hope in life from a supernatural warfare standpoint would be to go unnoticed by the angel of the Lord. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like Fuller, what are you doing? Nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm just over here minding my own business. No, don't you worry about me. But no. <laughs> so, so, this, so this is the angel of the Lord saying, you. I'm on you. He had so the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of his adversary. Now Balaam was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. Have you ever had your dog just bark at stuff, and you're wondering what's there? Why is he barking? I don't know, maybe, maybe they had this, this sense or this vision that we don't have. I'm, that's not a theological statement. I'm just saying it's weird. But this, but this donkey saw the angel of the Lord. And how do we know that? Because the Bible tells us it. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. Well, of course, what happens? 
Balaam's angry. Your, do your donkey bolts. And so what did he do? He started beating the donkey to turn her back into the road. And then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, so, so, the, so, the, donkey, so the angel has repositioned himself. The donkey's like, God was going around him. So the angel repositioned himself, and now he's right there again. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed, uh, excuse me, uh, then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. Ow! You know, I mean, you ever been caught in a stall between a horse and a, and a wall? It's, they're big. It's heavy. And when the... Um, uh, and then the angel, and so Balaam struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. She just sat down, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. I mean, he's just beating this donkey. I mean, he's beating it like, like a rented mule. I mean, it's an expression, I think. But he's, but he's just beating it. He's angry. You know, why won't you, what, what do you do? I mean, he's not even thinking anything supernatural here. I mean, here the great diviner prophets are not even thinking there's a supernatural reason to it. He's just thinking, this is, you know, the donkey's just misbehaving. And so we have this angel waiting there to kill Balaam. Balaam's donkey sees the angel of the Lord, and out of loyalty, out of loyalty, this donkey tries to get him out of this danger. And Balaam's sitting here beating him. And then, after this third beating, then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you've made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. Let's take a break. Let's push the pause button right there. How weird is Balaam's supernatural world that a donkey turns around and says, I was trying to save your neck, and he starts arguing with the donkey. I'm sorry, my dog turns around, looks at me and says, says, I was trying to save you from that raccoon or squirrel or whatever it was in your yard. I'm not going to argue with Jenny. I'm going to be like, what? Whoa, 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 what happened? When did you start talking? But now, I mean, I, I mean, there's nothing biblical to support this. But it makes me wonder, is this the first time that he and the donkey have had a conversation? I mean, it's, it's like, and apparently, apparently this did not freak Balaam out. I mean, he's, I mean, he, I, mean listen, I mean, again, the donkey explains there's an angel out there who's ready to kill you. And that's what freaks Balaam out, not the fact that his donkey just told him this. I mean, I, have, I talk to people all the time who talk to their dogs. Yet to meet one who says I talk, that they talk back. But that's how weird Balaam's world was. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life, all your life long to this day? Is it, is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? I mean, again, <laughs> again, we're sort of, you know, we're going to get to the whole you're going to curse Israel thing, but why are you beating your donkey? Why are you beating your donkey? The Lord cares about, about even the little things. 
And the angel of the Lord said, Why have you struck your donkey three, these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before, before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Don't you understand? Just think about the way this conversation plays out. God was not, God did not tell the donkey, bolt, turn, anything like that. God did allow the donkey to explain itself. But God, I mean, the sentence of death was already there. I was, I was waiting on the path to separate your head from your body. And the only reason that I'm having this conversation with you right now is because you're of the loyalty of your donkey, who apparently is the more faithful prophet in this little arrangement. Because had you continued on your path, on your chosen path, I would have exacted my justice upon you because your way is perverse. So instead of beating your donkey, you ought to be thanking your donkey. And then, Bangel, then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. Hello? Is that what it takes? God's word to you directly is not enough to tell you, do not do this? I mean, I'm sorry, do, how, many, how many warnings do we need? What if we actually just heard what God said and did it as opposed to waiting for ourselves, our lives to crash on the rocks of disobedience? You know, just about every major calamity I've had in my, in my life, I can trace back to some self-inflicted decision. You know, and I'm not talking about, I mean, I'm not talking about like if my, you know, when my grandfather died of a heart condition or anything. I'm talking about like, you know, when I look at the bad mistakes, when I look at the, 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 thing, the, the real griefs of my life, I can trace those back to a terrible decision where if I'd just done the right thing, if I'd just obeyed the Lord, I would not be, I, I would not be smashed up against the rocks. I would not be pressed against the wall. I would not be standing with a, an angel with a flaming sword in front of me, uh, a flaming sword in front of me. And this, he said, you know, but, but Balaam, you know, not only, you know, he, he says, well, that, you know, I'm, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to negotiate, you know, my own integrity. What's the price of my integrity? And now I'm not willing to really listen until I realize that, oh, this really is a real threat. What, what is Balaam guilty of? He's guilty of not taking God seriously. And why is that? It's because he's a sorcerer. Remember what a sorcerer is. Somebody who thinks they can manipulate God or can manipulate the divine or the supernatural. That's the problem. He thinks he's in charge. It's idolatry of self. I'm the one in charge. So, so, he, so Balaam said to the Lord, I've sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Thou, now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. So, so we have this, this, whole, you know, this, this whole episode where God has to go to this extreme level to connect 
with Balaam. But aren't we often pushed to that point? So, what happens? Again, you know, again, the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. And so, Balaam now has a new assignment. It's like, you were hired by Balaam, or by Balak, now you're working for me. Go with the men, but speak only what I, the, the word of, that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. So now what we see is that God is going to use Balaam for his purposes, not for Balak's purposes. And this whole episode reinforces the message that Balaam must speak only the word that God tells him. Remember, he started off kind of strong. When the men came and negotiated with him, they said, he says, I've, I can only do what the Lord tells me. Well, he tried to deviate from that, and the Lord said, no, no, you were right the first time. You're only going to do what I tell you to do. So now we see that God's going to use Balaam not to curse Israel, but to bless Israel. And that's what chapters 22 and 23, are, uh, 23 through 24 are all about. Much to Balak's frustration, Balaam comes to him and starts going through all the magical procedures of the cursing. He starts to go through, uh, he, starts to, he starts to do all these things that, you know, build altars, go to the high places, all this kind of stuff. But much to Balak's frustration, Balaam, instead of cursing Israel, is going to bless them. Thank you for whoever brought the Hershey's kits and put it on my Bible. Looking at verse 23, so here's what happened. So Balaam, uh, excuse me, in chapter 20, uh, the first oracle, there are three oracles of Balaam. And when the Lord, and I'm in chapter 23. So, Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said. And Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to, the bear, to a bare height, and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord said, Put a word, excuse me, and the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth, and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And listen to what Balaam says. Balaam took, his dis, uh, took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob. Come, curse Israel for me. And come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold a people... Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or the number or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. What, does, what is it that Balaam does? Balaam gets up and the oracle delivers is not a, is not a curse against Israel. He says... This is God's chosen people. This is a people who are blessed. The children of Jacob are not, a, are not like other people. They are special of God. And they like saying, that's not what I paid you to say. 
read the script. You're supposed to be cursing them, not affirming what their God has said about them. So let's try this again. Let's try this again. So chapter, so the next, the second oracle. Second time. Balaam says, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and he will not, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not fulfill it? In other words, this is going to happen whether I'm here or not, whether your armies are here or not. You are in trouble. Behold, I received a command to bless, and he is blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and, it is, and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. He is the horns of the wild ox. And uh, for there is no enchantment against Jacob, no, div no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. And it does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. That's Balak's, uh, Balaam's second oracle. And so what is, what's Balak's response? Do not curse them at all. <laughs> it's like, we're just, I just want you to stop talking. Every time you open your mouth, Balaam, it gets worse for us. And I want you to say another thing. Well, of course, Balaam's got a whole another third oracle in him. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, chapter 24, beginning in verse 3. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are you, O tents of Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than a gog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and it is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. And I think implied in that is, and cursed are those who pay others to curse you. Which is part of the original blessing of Abraham, is it not? That those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. You know, and, and what's, what's even worse is, and I need to wrap this up, but what's even worse is that you know, Balak's saying, all right, enough's enough. You're fired. And Balak, Balak's like, I got one more. Um, and he does. He goes into one more, uh, one more oracle after that. But what's interesting is that we see in, this, uh, in these oracles a pattern. We see, you know, he's come, rather, he's, God takes what was supposed to be a cursing for Israel and makes it a blessing. Which I think right there, that's a preachable point right there, that God takes what others mean for evil against his people and makes them a blessing. God takes the curses and makes them blessings. But we see in, this, we see in these oracles, you know, in Balak's attempts to persuade Balaam, you know, there are certain repeating elements um, even though there's some significant de deviations. First, Balak takes Balaam to these high points, you know, just you know, where they would build altars in the future. 
Second, seven altars are built and seven bulls and seven rams. I mean, he's following all the, all the rules, it seems. But what we see is that, you know, what happens when we, when we do all the religious stuff for the wrong reasons? You know, that's no longer, when you take a religious ritual and use it for your purposes, that's not a sacrifice. What do we call that? We call that magic. We call that witchcraft. What's the difference between, say, for example, religion and witchcraft? Well, ritual, you know, basically witchcraft, magic, is ritual manipulation of the supernatural. The difference between a spell and a prayer is that in a prayer, you're honoring God, you're asking for God's help, you're, you're pleading, you're throwing, you're surrendering to God. In a spell, you're trying to control God. You're trying to manipulate God. You're trying to manipulate the supernatural. So it may look like a legitimate ceremony. He's following all the rules, he's following all the procedures, but he's doing it to try and manipulate God. Third, Balaam tells Balak to stay by the altars while he goes elsewhere to meet the Lord. But on the third occasion, the Spirit of God descends on him. Fourth, Balaam pronounces a long three-part blessing of Israel. In other words, God, these are God's people, and he's not going to curse them. And then, of course, Balak re reacts angrily each time. But Balaam keeps reasserting that he's only doing what the Lord has told him to do. And it's fascinating that you see throughout these, throughout these blessings and curses, it's not, just that, it's not just that Balaam is blessing them in this encounter. I mean, you hear, hear, I mean, you hear him repeating the covenant promises of Abraham. You hear him talking about the lion that's going to rise, the lion of Judah that's going to arise. You, talk, you hear him talking about all these sort of messianic things that are going to happen. And what happens is that Balaam's prophecy is not just a prophecy for this would-be battle at Moab. It's a prophecy for the ages. Because in this prophecy, we see some of the first glimpses, some of the first indications of God's bigger plan for Israel once Israel is settled and once we start to lay the groundwork for the coming of the Messiah. So there's some really, really interesting Really, really interesting stuff. I, I encourage you to go back and really study those, those oracles of Balaam. Because one of the metaphors that's, that is apparent here is that, you know, just, you know, the donkey is in many ways the true prophet. And, and I'm not saying this to be, you know, to be provocative. But, but in many ways, we also see that even truth comes from the mouth of an ass. And, this, and I'm not talking about the donkey, I'm talking about Balaam. Because Balaam was a swindler, a sorcerer, a, a, you know, a, a charlatan, all these kinds. I don't know, it actually wasn't a charlatan. He, he seemed to have some sort, of, some sort of supernatural mojo or something like that. But whatever it was, he was doing it all for his own purposes. And yet God still used him. God, God used Balaam to make prophecies about Israel, about God's kingdom and the Messiah in a way that made it unforgettable to the enemies of Israel. And so what you see is that God, God can use any instrument, any mouth that he desires. I mean, again, there are so many things that, that we can unpack from the story of Balaam. And it's clear that throughout Scripture they continue to reference this, they continue to unpack that. But 
We're just dealing with the book of Numbers today. So I'm going to release you on that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, as we study this story, we ask you to help us to remember that you call us into obedience, that even if we don't, dis even if we don't obey you or follow you willingly, even if we negotiate or make deals or things like that, you're still going to use us for your purposes. This is not an enticement, O oh Lord, but this ought to be a warning to us that, that we are not going to outmaneuver or trick you. That we, O oh Lord, even in our sin, will bring glory to your name. Not that we should celebrate sin, O oh Lord, not that we should sin, that grace may abound, but Lord, through the example of your justice, you will show your greater sovereignty and your greater power. So Lord, make us humble. Make us obedient. Let us willingly and lovingly follow you so that we will find ourselves among the blessed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you.